Steve and John with us now. Thank you both for joining with us. Um, and so, I want to hear some details. Uh, <laughs> yes. So Brad, it's so again, so thank you very much. Race Thanks. History 2021, welcome back. And we are live on e on YouTube and on racer.com. So thank you very much, Brad, on to you. All right, thank you very much, Francis. We really appreciate this. And it has been a wonderful week here on EPAR Trade with Race Industry Week and all of the different people that we've talked to, all the different people that we've heard from. And now it's very exciting to be joined by NASCAR and Steve O'Donnell, the executive vice president, uh, as well as, uh, as John Probst. I mean, just to have you guys on here this week and today to talk about everything that's going on in NASCAR and what's happened with not only 2021, but what we can look forward to in 2022 is pretty exciting. So welcome. Thank you so much. Hey, great to be here. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, thank you, Brad. All right, Steve, let's start with you, uh, executive vice president and chief racing development officer. We saw you on stage last night in Nashville, Tennessee at the Music City Center presenting championship awards, which was a lot of fun. But let's take a quick look back here on the 2021 season. We have three first-time champions, a lot of young drivers actually having a lot of success in NASCAR, winning championships and everything that we've seen on the racetrack. Kind of give us an overview of what we saw here in 2021. Yeah, I mean, last night for sure was a, a late night, but a fun night celebrating all of our uh, champions in Nashville with you know Ben Rhodes, Daniel Hemrick, and then Kyle Larson. Uh, really fun night to see the industry come together, and, and I think a culmination of of an incredible year. Um, certainly, from you know as we as we look at it from an eye test standpoint, but then you've got to look at you know what are the facts, and you know, we've got a, a loop data system that I think you're familiar with, Brad, in terms of you know measurements. So we've got to go back and look at how did we do from uh, green flag passes on track, green flag passes for the lead and, and that goes back to 2007 and, and our best year um, by any measure since 2007. So really successful on track product when you look at the, the racing. And then when you looked um, at the storylines that, that happened during the year, a number of new venues that we'll talk about, lots of new uh, markets that we're able to enter with some race fans that were eager to see NASCAR in person that either hadn't seen it for a while or we were back you had some rivalries take place on and off the track. Some, uh, some good, some we had to get, unfortunately, uh, involved with. Um, new ownership, you know, with 2311, track house, uh, live fast, really exciting to see as there's new ownership not only comes on for last year, but, but going into 2022 as, as well. And then, you know, a run for the ages with Kyle Larson. I mean, what can you say? Not only in NASCAR, but across all of motorsports. I'm not sure that'll ever be repeated in terms of not only the number of races, but just the number of wins he stacked out, um, you know, what he went through uh, and what he learned and grew as a person. And I think really proud of him uh, representing our sport as our champion. You know, Steve, we saw a lot of uh, we saw records broken this year. It was even talked about last night. Kyle Larson uh, became the driver who has led the most laps in NASCAR Cup Series competition over a 36 race schedule. He went to victory lane 10 times this year. And it wasn't even just Kyle Larson because Denny Hamlin led all or not led, but completed all but what three laps throughout the entire season. Um, yet we still had a big variety of winners. We had first time winners to start the season with Michael McDowell and Christopher Bell. You mentioned Bubba Wallace, another first time winner here in the 2021 season as well. In spite of the fact that Kyle Larson was dominant in a lot of race weeks, it was still a highly competitive season. What does that say about what NASCAR has done when it comes to parity throughout race teams, throughout manufacturers, uh, but also just the highly competitive level throughout the entire sport? Yeah, I think it's a tribute to the, to the other guy we've got on the screen here, John Probst, and, and his ability to work with the race teams, you know, ultimately to put the best package together for each team to go out there and compete. And we've still got work to do. We've got a new car coming for sure. But I think that working relationship and an understanding from all of our OEMs, we believe we've got the best engineers in the world working for our race teams and they all work together to really provide, you know, what's next and, and where do we want to go as a series. And they understand that, you know, more drivers winning, more teams competing is great for the sport. It's great for fans to, to look at, you know, who might win. Um, but also, you know, we've missed kind of that dominant driver too. We were in a little bit of a period where, you know, you kind of had who knows who's going to win and, and so seeing, you know, Kyle Larson, you know, superstar, future superstar, but also drivers coming up through the ranks, our veterans saying, hey, not so fast, you know, I'm, I'm here to win as well. 
uh, really created when you went to a race, you didn't know who was going to win. And I think seeing the playoff format, you know, play out and the regular season really mattering, uh, taking Kyle Larson where he probably needed some points um, and then elevating his game throughout to, to the final four. And then in Phoenix, once again, proving it's a team sport with a great pit stop as well. So exciting to see what's going on on track, not just in cup, but I think all throughout our ranks, you know, especially our touring series as well with some new talent coming up. John Probst, I know your official title is Senior Vice President of Racing Innovation. And um, I know we'll talk a lot about what's coming up here in the 2022 season, but let's take a look back at 2021 and what got us here. We've had a car that NASCAR has been racing for a number of years and realistically a platform that NASCAR has been racing for much longer than that as well. How hard is it to keep all of the manufacturers close together, all of the race teams close together? Because I know they come to you and say, oh, we want parity, we want this and we want that. Yet they're going to spend every resource they have to try and find the edge up on the rest of the competition. Yeah, you and Steve hit it square on the head there. You know, like the platform we have right now set the bar really high um, from a parity perspective, you know, and, and we're constantly working with our OEMs and our teams to make sure that our you know, submission processes are as complete as they can be. And, you know, it's, it's not unheard of for us throughout the course of the season to bring some cars and engines back to the R&D center uh, just to evaluate, you know, kind of how people are developing the packages and, you know, where they're working and um, just to, you know, try and keep our, our finger on the pulse of where the development is happening. And, you know, obviously we, we, we try to uh, make sure that, as best we can, we're competing on the racetrack. We want our fans to watch every bit of the competition. And, um, you know, like Steve said, we have the best engineers in the world, but, you know, we want to make sure that when our fans are at the racetrack or watching on TV or online that, you know, they're, they're seeing the absolute best possible racing, you know, on track. Steve, let's take a look at what we had in 2021, as far as the new schedule went. We went to Circuit of the Americas for the very first time for NASCAR, and this is a track that was built for Formula One. We got to go to Road America with the Cup Series, which we had already seen the Xfinity Series race there. We ran a dirt track at Bristol Motor Speedway. We got to go back to Nashville Super Speedway for the first time in a decade and the first time for the NASCAR Cup Series, among the many other changes that we had throughout 2021. As far as revamping the schedule, the difficulties involved, number one, in just doing that from a logistics perspective, but also when it comes to what it means to NASCAR to be able to be flexible and move wherever you can and actually find new markets, find a new fan base or, or service the fan base that we have in a way that we did in 2021. Yeah, it's a great question, right? I think it goes back to you know what took place even prior to what we dealt with with COVID and you know, with the France family kind of bringing ISC and NASCAR together really gave us some opportunities. Marcus Smith as, as well with what he did at SMI. And as an industry, we all recognized that it was really time to evolve. And when we talked about that as a group, particularly with our broadcast partners and listened to our fans, it was also clear that, you know, one new race or one new market, you know, that, that wasn't what people really wanted. They wanted to see as many changes as possible, but done in a smart way. And, and again, I go back to just the industry coming together and, and talking about what are the opportunities, what can we pull off as a group. You know, we were very aggressive. Um, we learned a lot of things uh, this year, certainly that we can't control the weather. Um, we also learned that, um, you know, from a NASCAR scheduling standpoint, you know, we didn't want to go somewhere and be one and done. It was important for us to, you know, know we're going to go into a market, learn some things, and then how do we improve upon that? So you looked at Bristol. You know, the weather was a challenge, but the most anticipated race we had on the schedule and the fans really reacted positively so much so that when you look at 2022, you know, it's going to be prime time now on Fox. And, and that was huge for the sport and the industry to get that that prime time window for us. Coda, Formula One, as, as you've said, you know, we wanted to make sure we didn't go in there and and, uh, you know, embarrass ourselves in terms of, OK, what's NASCAR going to do here? How's this going to work? But when you look at our road course product really over the last few years, it's, it's been terrific. And, and once again, our drivers continue to prove that week in and week out. You know, the weather certainly caught us. We have said we're now going to race in the rain. Uh, I think we had some critics, rightly so, in terms of how far that went. 
definitely learned some things um, from that that we can apply when we go back to Coda. Hopefully we've got great sunny weather because the, the fan base was unbelievable there. Uh, the town, a great place to go racing. And I think everybody to a person in the industry thought, hey, this is this is awesome for the sport. And then as you, you continued on and, and looked at Nashville, and Brad, you're there, we just got back. Um, and you looked at 2019, the enthusiasm for the banquet, you know, sold out facility out at the, out at the super speedway. And what was neat about that was, was not only the, the crowd at the track, but when you went into the city, you just saw NASCAR everywhere. And, and it's a really important market for us. And then Road America, same thing. That Midwest market, you know, when we talk to our OEMs about where do you want to be and, and where do you want to race, to a person, they all talked about, you know, Road America, an iconic racetrack. How do we how do we get back there at the cup level and over delivered in terms of what the track did and, and the fan base and just the enthusiasm for the campers really felt good. And, and uh, just a great, great season for us to kind of launch learn. Uh, we certainly learned by no means did we not get out of the park. Uh, we had a lot to apply to, to next year, which I think we'll do. Um, you look at that even around the Indy Road course as well, like that's something you know, we've worked with the track of, of how do we make adjustments. And we've also talked that got us to some discussions of, uh, hey, let's look at the oval as well. And kind of could we could we go back and forth? So, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, the risk that, that everyone took. And but more importantly, how we came together and said, we know we won't be perfect, but but let's work together and, and let's deliver for our fans and, and let's build upon something. When it comes to the event itself, uh, or the events, I should say, um, for Circuit of the Americas and for Bristol Motor Speedway, I mean, those were faced with big challenges with literally just a deluge of rain. I mean, people were wondering how you're going to race on dirt with all this rain. Mm -hmm. Or at Circuit of the Americas, how you're going to run with all this rain. But the fact of the matter is the fan base showed up for both of those races in a big way and even walked away a rain shortened race at circuit of the Americas, the challenges we had at Bristol thinking, wow, these are great events. Then we go to road America and we see record numbers of crowds show up. We come to Nashville super speedway and we look at it and look, I know a lot of times in NASCAR, we go, Oh man, we got to fix a traffic problem. But yeah. sometimes we look at it and say, wow, how great is it that we have a traffic problem exactly. showing up? People showed up this year, right? They did. They did. And uh, it was really neat to see. And it was one of those that uh, you catch yourself sometimes on traffic, right? Like, oh, what, what's going on here? And, and Nashville, I think, again, that goes back to, to learning some things. Um, you know, I would say everything else, 100% home run. Uh, but some things have been put in place for next year to, to alleviate some of those issues and some different apps we can use for fans coming to the race. So you know, those are parts and, 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 and things that we, we kind of build upon, especially around the rain, you know, that you mentioned um, a lot of work had gone into that with John and folks at Goodyear and what can we do for the cars? And then how far can we go uh, as an industry? You know, we have not raced in the rain. So we jumped into saying, okay, we're all in. Um, and, and in hindsight, we've got a lot of equipment at the track uh, that we can utilize that maybe others don't. Um, so we can utilize that in a, in a good way and go back out, probably a race quicker. Um, but we've got to do that in a, in a smart way and, and really coordinate that with the industry. The drivers, you know, were very vocal, rightly so. And, and But what came of that was some really good ideas as we head into the 22 season and, and what we can do to, to go racing and make sure the fans get as many laps as possible when they're there. John, on a competitive side of things, the one thing every time we talked to race teams was about the parts freeze was that, you know, originally before the pandemic, we were going to go to the next gen race car in 2021, but that pushed it back a year. So all of the teams had a parts freeze. You changed the amount of wind tunnel time that they could have in 2021. Yet we went from 2020 where a Ford and Kevin Harvick won nine races and a Toyota and Denny Hamlin won seven races to now 2021 where Hendrick Motorsports won 17 races with their Chevrolets across the uh, entire 36 race season. How did you manage that? How were you able to manage that? Yet we still saw innovation from race teams and, and sort of a shift in the competitiveness of the field. Yeah, I think, you know, for even prior to the pandemic, we worked together with the teams through our competition meetings that we have probably eight, nine times a year. You know, we get together to talk about things that, you know, like we were talking before, we want to race on the racetrack. And if if teams are racing, let's say in radiators or oil coolers or something of that nature, it, it's something that just creates a lot of expense for the industry. And, and frankly, our, our fans don't relate to it um, as far as all the expenditure that goes into that. Um, so we, we picked parts and pieces prior to that. You know, prior to COVID, we had 
we had frozen, I used the example, you know, oil coolers and, and water radiators there. But, um, but then as, you know, COVID hit, we, you know, under Steve's leadership there, you know, challenged us. And we, we met like every day um, from that day after, you know, the Atlanta race didn't happen. And we tried to get really aggressive to, you know, help the race teams, um, frankly, at that point, get through the COVID um, situation. And, and we got really aggressive on freezing chassis and, you know, freezing suspension parts. And, you know, like we had said earlier, we, we check the parity all the time. And when, when we do that, a lot of times we find that the cars are very close together. The engines make the same horsepower, um, but everybody continues to, to work away because, you know, we're all racers. We constantly try and find an edge and um, just identified a lot more parts than we had ever done before. Um, we limited, like I said, chassis, uprights, lower control arms, truck arms, uh, rear housings, you name it. You know, we were just trying to grab all the big pieces. Um, but then, you know, as Steve was saying earlier, you know, we, we have the best engineers in the world. So we didn't lock the entire car down. So these guys are able to continue to apply their simulation, their tire modeling, you know, their approach to how they control the platform versus grip for a particular race. And I think you saw like there's still ebb and flow to, you know, and, and you see it a lot, right? Teams that struggle work a lot harder than the teams that are running really good. And I, and I don't mean to say that the teams that are running really good don't work hard. They do. But like, you know, even from my time on the team side, like when you're running good, you'll be like, yeah, I didn't change a spindle all year and we ran really good. And the guys that weren't running good, be like, yeah, we ran 13 different spindles trying to figure it out. You know, so you're like those teams, like when you're running good, you're scared to change anything because you're going to mess up your luck, you know? And when you're not running good, you're more aggressive and you can make bigger swings at things. And I, I think that's what you see happen um, for, you know, a team like Hendrick, um, they, they've got, you know, as good as engineers as any of them. So, you know, you, you give those guys, you know, a challenge and you, and you got the carrot hanging out there. Like you said, you know, the Stuart Haas cars were, were really dominant. Um, I, I think you see what happens. And, you know, I, I think our new car won't be any different. You know, we make use of a lot of common parts, but that car is going to be able to be configured from anything from a, a road course to, you know, you know, you guys had talked about, you know, next year, you know, we're going to go to the Coliseum and, you know, that car, same car could be run at the Coliseum or road course or a super speedway. And, and they can set it up anywhere in between for any track that we go to. So I feel like from the, the bucket of parts that they have, um, their ability to set the car up will, will probably exceed what we have even this year. Yeah, and, and I look forward, we'll, we're going to talk about the new car, the next-gen race car, which is coming online here uh, shortly. But Steve, John had mentioned the Los Angeles Coliseum. The first time we're going to get to see the next-gen car in competition is going to be on a quarter-mile racetrack, which has not even been constructed yet because we have to actually wait till they stop playing football there before we can actually build a racetrack and go there in early February, the week before the Super Bowl. You know, a lot of times when it comes to change in the sport, and I'll use an example, um, I had the opportunity to, to ride around the o, uh, the Roval, rather, at Charlotte Motor Speed with, with Adam Stevens before the race weekend, and he said, you know, when we first heard about the Roval, and Adam Stevens being Christopher Bell's crew chief, we thought, God, this is crazy, there's no way you can do this, and now all of a sudden the Roval is just another racetrack for them. I know a lot of people have the tendency to hear something new in, in the sport of NASCAR, really auto racing in general, and go, First reaction, how are you going to do that? That can't happen. How, you know, who's going to make that work? And then the next thing you know, we do it and it happens and it works in a big way. When you guys first proposed running in the Los Angeles Coliseum to the race teams, to anybody else in the industry, what was the initial reaction? Yeah, probably similar of, you know, what are these guys thinking? And, and um, it, it goes back to, though, you know, some of the history of the sport and, you know, Ben Kennedy has, has led this and, and we were looking around at what can we do and what could be different. And you look through some of the history books and you, the, the first trip we made was actually up to Soldier Field uh, because we used to race there uh, way back in the day. And, you know, just because of some of the challenges in the space, realized that uh, that's not something we could do. But it kind of spawned the idea of where else could, could we look at what's an iconic venue, um, you know, within the United States. The Coliseum came up. Um, we made a visit over there and, you know, I would put us up against anyone in terms of our ability to make something happen. We're going to learn, certainly, and we'll make some mistakes along the way. But, you know, really proud, again, of the industry 
uh, saying, hey, let's take a chance on something and, and let's go out there. It's around the Super Bowl. It's at a time when there's a lot of activity in the marketplace. And I think some people forget in terms of viewership for NASCAR, you know, that's our number one market. And there's a lot of interest there, really a, a growing fan base as well. So, you know, we wanted to, to do something different, um, refresh the class a little bit. And it, it, it just was an opportunity we felt like we couldn't pass up when we talked to the, to the USC, you know, athletic director and sports administration. They said, hey, this is, this is worth a shot. Um, that went to, all right, we could open it up, you know, and we're going to start, start paving in two weeks. So we had enough time to, to make some things happen. Uh, then we went through uh, the Fox folks who thought this was fantastic. They were able to kind of combine some things around the Super Bowl and, you know, some talent that's out there. It'll be a lot of entertainment and racing, um, but still some folks who, who say, what are you doing? But I think the Bowman Gray test that, that John put on with the new car, you had Tony Stewart, Dale Jr., you know, get out of that car and say, hey, this, there's something here. This could be, this could be a lot of fun. So I'm really excited to, to see what we do out there. When it comes to a NASCAR race weekend, there are events and there are races. So there's the competitive side of things. And then there is the promoter side of things, if you will. And, and obviously it, what's going to happen at the LA Coliseum is an event, but it also has to be a good race for this. And I shouldn't say for this to work, but a lot of people look at it and say, oh, well, let's hope this isn't a crash fest. Let's hope the car survives and all of that. How do you balance where you're trying to figure out, okay, what's going to work from the sports competitive side of things, but what's also going to generate the interest from the event side of things? That's a, that is the, the million dollar question, Brad. I think uh, it's a great one because uh, the LA Coliseum will, will prove out some things hopefully for us. Uh, it won't be perfect, uh, but we do believe we can go out and, and race there. Very similar to Bowman Gray. You know, you watch what happens at Bowman Gray each and every week, some, some beating and banging and, and, and some fun. Uh, and I think it also will hopefully prove out that, you know, we're well aware that we've got some short tracks around the, the U.S. that we could also maybe take this concept to in, in the future. Uh, and so hopefully it'll prove that out and, and kind of a combination of, of entertainment um, the good news is, you know, when you look at the ticket sales already out there, I think 60% are fans who have never been to a race. So it'll be interesting to see what they think in terms of, you know, how this works. But also we've got to make sure that, you know, our hardcore fan who's going to Talladega wants to, wants to tune in if they're not able to, to get out there and say, that was fun. And, and I like that. And that was a cool launch to the season. So to us, that's the balance is really for the fans to make sure that uh, what they see on the racetrack, first and foremost, is what we're all about. Um, and we deliver on that aspect. But if we can add to that experience when someone's at the track, you know, that's that's fantastic because we know people are going to tune in and they tune in to see a great race. But they go to the they go to the racetrack, not only to see a great race, but be entertained outside of that. Otherwise, right, they would just watch on television. So I think we're we're striking the right balance as we go forward. As much as it would be fun, Steve, to ask you to break some big news here, um, I'll ask you this more in a general term. Street mm -hmm. courses have been talked about. Um, if the L.A. Coliseum works, basically, I think some people look at it and say, we can pick any place, any particular venue, whatever it might be, and actually build a race course there. In fact, the first ever road race in NASCAR was, happened at an airport in Linden, yep. New Jersey. So are the possibilities endless now? Do we, are we truly thinking outside of the box of where we can actually hold events? I think in a balanced approach. So when, when you look at the schedule, we are always going to innovate now. We, we know that we want to continue to do that, but we also feel really, really good about the schedule that we have and, and want to build some date equity uh, for the tracks who have certainly been part of our system for a long, long time that the, the fans think, hey, don't touch this. This is really working. Um, so continue to, to build upon that event experience at, at those venues and those iconic venues. But you know, there's one or two that, you know, maybe we can rotate, do some, do some new things, kind of freshen it up as well. So I would definitely anticipate for 2023 seeing, you know, at least one uh, kind of new venue or something new from us uh, again. Uh, but part of that will depend on, you know, what did we do in LA? How did it work? What did the fans think? What did we learn? Um, and if we can apply that somewhere else, we, we certainly will. Yeah, I'm sure we'll circle back to some schedule stuff here in a moment. But John, I want to ask you, for all of these things to work, obviously, we have to have a platform that works with it. And, and I've always felt that no matter what, NASCAR can figure it out. I think we saw that in 2020 with the pandemic, where we literally had to, um, <laughs> to use industry buzzwords, we had to pivot and say, well, we can't race here, so let's run the road course at Daytona. We can't race here, so let's run three races at Darlington, whatever it might be. But in developing this new race car and to truly move stock car racing forward and get it into, you know, the century where we are now, 
Um, how much of a challenge has it been, number one? And number two, when you guys sat down and said, what do we do and what direction do we want to go? How did you land on where we are now? Yeah, good question. And I think that in hindsight, you know, I, if next gen car had been done prior to the pandemic, I think our sport would have navigated it even better from the perspective of, you know, today teams have super speedway cars and intermediate cars and short track cars. And, you know, Steve was part of a lot of those discussions when we were trying to figure out, Hey, could, could we race here in three weeks if we had to, you know, and at that point, we're like, well, the teams might not have this type of car ready. And, you know, with this new car, and I think we saw it, you know, you know, we tested it, the Roval converted the cars and tested on the oval the next day it took them about four hours to convert the cars from uh, you know, like road course spec to oval spec. So we felt like, you know, that was one of the things, you know, when we, we sat down to design the car was, you know, we need a platform like you had mentioned, the platform we have now has served us well, but that platform, you know, it's become dated over the years, but, you know, at the same time, it set a, a very high bar um, for the new platform, you know, to meet and exceed over time. And, you know, we, we also, it, it's no secret, right? Like we, we value the three OEMs that we have. We, we constantly talk to other ones, trying to encourage them to, you know, come into the sport and, you know, we have to be relevant to them. You've got to have parts and pieces on the car that are, you know, more stock, you know, when, when the car was launched in its day, you know, that, that was more stock, you know, that things have progressed over time. It was a natural evolution for the car to do the same thing. Uh, so we did that, certainly not just from the parts and pieces on the car, but also the powertrains. So we have protected in the design of the car for, you know, everything from the current ice that's in it now to hybrid technologies to full electric. Uh, and I, I don't know that we can anticipate, you know, everything that could come at us. So one thing COVID taught us was that the pace of development gets really fast, quick, and sometimes unexpected. So we feel like the diversity that the car allows us now will allow us to pivot better into whatever direction we need to in the future. Um, beyond just the car itself, you know, we, we want to attract new owners to the, to, the, to the sport. And I think you see that now, you know, with some of the new ownership that we've seen coming in in anticipation for the car. Um, our OEMs as well, uh, we wanted to sit down with them. And a lot of the early development of the car was pre-COVID. So with respect to the body design, you know, we ended up with a more coupe looking uh, aspect ratio to the car. And we literally just took the production cars, took the silhouette of all three of them and, and locked ourselves in a room uh, on multiple days with the OEM representatives, you know, uh, negotiating, you know, lines here and there and design cues here and um, landed what I think was in a good spot. And I think when our fans look at these cars, um, the feedback so far, and I'm sure as they continue to look at them and get familiar with them, uh, they're going to fall in love with them like we have, uh, you know, the, the folks at the R&D Center and at Goodyear and our engineers that we work with uh, at the teams and the OEMs, you know, the one thing uh, that's pretty resounding across everybody who's been with the car is just, you know, it looks like a stock car. We put the stock back in stock car. Um, so we're, we're pretty pleased with where we're at. Um, it is a race car. I don't know that I've, I've ever been part of a race car that was, you know, done. You're always working on race cars. You're always trying to make them better. And, you know, we, we're going to, we're going to, you know, obviously we got to be smart about it. We're not going to be sitting there tuning on it every week, but, you know, we, we feel like we've got a really good starting point. Um, again, we'll stay engaged with our teams, our drivers, um, collect their feedback and, and work as an industry collaboratively um, to just keep us going in the right direction. When it comes to designing a new race car, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of layers that go into it. Number one, you, you want it to be competitive. Obviously, the race teams want something that economically can be viable for them. And, and we hear a lot of times, you know, how can the sport save the owners from themselves? Because just when you find a way to save them money here, will they take that big pile of money and move it over here and more often than not end up growing that big pile of money that they're saving on something. But what we've landed on is a race car where um, you have several different vendors that are coming together to produce parts that will ultimately inside of these race shops become a whole and become the race car. And the way that race teams are constructing this race car and putting it together and delivering it to the racetrack and putting it on the racetrack is different than what they've done for decades. How do you get to this? How do you say, okay, this is what makes the most sense for the industry as a whole? Yeah, I think, 
one for us, like from the engineering side of it, as we designed the car, Delara was a was our design partner in, in designing the car. Now we had regular reviews with the industry. And when we had particular parts of the car that were mature enough, we went through an RFP process where we had put out a, a tender basically saying, hey, NASCAR is looking for a supplier for X part. Um, you know, we have a pretty um, Tom Swindell at the R&D Center led the charge on this for us. Uh, very rigorous uh, RFP process takes about 43 days to go from sending our, our request out until, you know, we end up with a selection um, and notification of the vendor. But part of that process is like reviews with the industry. Uh, we have team reps that sit in on that. Uh, OEM reps, and they all give us their feedback. We select what we feel is the best, and it's not always the cheapest supplier um, for this car. Uh, we took what we felt was the best supplier, um, and, and sometimes that, that has to be taken in the context of where we feel the technology will go over time. So we wanted to you know, not just grab the, the solution of today, but also have a mindset that can this solution be adapted to the future um, what we can anticipate today, and if if there's some you know curveball that we didn't expect, um, how adaptable is it to you know uh, configuring it a little differently or modifying it to to meet some new unexpected function? And that that was taken into account as well. Um, and now you know you see, to your point, like all these parts now are showing up at the race teams, um, you know, and as most race teams, you never have enough parts. Um, so we're, we're, we're working through all of that now. Uh, we feel like we're in a good spot. You know, we'll, we'll have plenty of race cars to start the season. Um, so that, that's kind of how we got all the parts coming together. Yeah, I think, John, to your right, it's probably, probably important, Brad, to, to talk just quickly about, too, kind of how John and his team even came to the model. And, and it was really important for us, and, and, and John led the way on this, of looking at where are we today? And you know, you, you don't hear us talk about it and we won't because fans just don't care, right? They want to see good racing. Um, but the business model for the sport has to be sustainable long, long term. And, and so we really started with, you know, what does it take to be a, a top performing team in NASCAR? And we looked at the, the costs um, to, to do that versus the potential return. Um, and we looked at our, our teams were really becoming you know, complete car manufacturers. And, and we knew that that wasn't a sustainable model going forward. We know that we feel like we're in a really good place in terms of where the sport will be with the new broadcasts um, package and, and charter value. So if we could combine all of that with a car that we felt like could go out and race on the racetrack, um, really race in terms of John says this race at the track versus in the wind tunnel, um, that was going to be a successful model for us. So a lot of the work that's been done already in terms of you know, getting these cars on track, getting these cars to do a lap has been incredible by John and the team and you know, a lot of pressure for, for everyone, but, but really feel like we're continuing to work together, get good feedback and, and make sure we're able to be in a good position as we head out to the Coliseum. Steve, on your end of things, um, there's a huge challenge. And I've heard Steve Phelps, the president of NASCAR, refer to the sport as a whole sometimes it's maybe, uh, maybe a three-legged stool. You have the sanctioning body, NASCAR, the officiating leg of the stool. You have the racetrack side of it, the promoters, the people who are selling tickets and sponsorships and entitlements and all of that. And then you have the race team side of it. Now, all three of those don't always see eye to eye, and all three of those have their own individual things that is important to them. So on the race car side of things with the race teams, well, number one, they want to beat their competitors and they want yeah. to be able to find any way they can to do that. But they also don't want to go bankrupt in doing so for the racetrack side of things. Well, they want to sell tickets. They want to promote the sport. They want the help of every side of things to be able to do that. And the sanctioning body wants to make sure everything is equal and that we've got a very highly competitive field. In trying to manage that, when you're building a new race car, obviously, there's a lot of time that's dedicated to the race team side of that. But when you're changing the schedule, there's a lot that's dedicated to the race track side of that. And then, of course, anytime you have something new, you have to dedicate time to the officiating side of that. How do you manage that? Yeah, well, we uh, we manage it daily. And I'll give you a good example, maybe just around the car, uh, first of all. So and it really I know this is overused by by even me, particularly the word you know, collaboration. But you look at this next gen car. 
you know, we're in Nashville for a banquet. Everyone's exhausted in the industry. They probably want to go have a beer or, or whatever they want to do. Uh, John and I set up a two hour meeting for next gen and we invite drivers, OEMs, team members, owners um, to just come in and help us. And where are we at? Uh, that room could have been empty if everyone chose to say, you know what, this is on you guys and you figure it out. Um, but we had a number of people show up, a number of people very candid with where they want to see it. Not everyone agrees. Um, but what was great about it was just candid feedback of, of what people want to see in this car to be able for us with the common theme of we want to put on the best racing possible. So certainly there's some times where there's selfish feedback of, you know, hey, I like this particular aspect of a car, so build it this way. And others are shaking their head in the back of the room. Uh, but all in all, the, the theme has been that let's all get to a good place as, as an industry. So I think the tough part of that, especially for John and his crew, when it comes to the, the race cars, is really filtering, you know, fact and fiction. And I don't mean that someone's just making things up. I mean, the fiction of what you said, Brad, of, you know, I want this because I am really good in this area and it's going to benefit me versus is this going to benefit the sport? And I think for our perspective and, and what we have to do is over communicate. And I've learned this the hard way in my time at NASCAR too, because oftentimes when someone will bring up an idea in a meeting, it was great that you had those folks in the meeting. Uh, but if you don't follow up and say, we listened, um, here's why we didn't do that. What you have happen is I gave my opinion, those guys don't care um, and they don't listen to me. And so we've kind of learned along the way that anything that comes up in a meeting, no matter what it is, there are no bad ideas, you know, circle back. And, you know, why did we go a different direction? Uh, maybe everybody thought, you know, give you an example, a bunch of people thought we should have points as, as part of qualifying. Um, as we talked through it with, you know, our broadcast partners and others, we figured, you know, we're, we're making such a big change next year. It's new. Let's hit pause. Let's let's get it right here and, and, and let's see where we're going. Um, we've had debates on, you know, backup cars, right, John? How many backup cars should you have? And we got to cut costs. And, you know, one of the ideas that came from the meeting was, you know, hey, I get all that, but let's make sure we have enough cars out of track for the first quarter of the season so we don't embarrass ourselves without a backup car. You know, kind of kind of the fundamentals, but but it's good to hear from folks and, and talk about, you know, just things that would really help the industry. So all in all, I'd say it's, it's a balance. Um, but it is over communicating uh, things I try and do every day. And it's one of those things like Mike Helton said, uh, you know, he's got a little thing written down on his desk of who needs to know about what I just did. Um, and, and just making sure that you over communicate about what, what's happening. I like that. Who needs to know what I just did? That's actually some pretty, a good way of thinking. John, on your end of things, um, if you listen to race teams at various points of this race car development, maybe the sky was falling. Maybe this is something we don't understand. Maybe this is the greatest thing in the world. Um, it felt like to me a couple of weeks ago at the two day test at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And I know subsequent of that, we're even gonna have more test sessions and a lot more is gonna happen in the development. But it seemed like just walking around the garage, the mood of it was, okay, the race car is in our hands. And now let's take this race car and find out how we maximize that. Did you feel almost like a tipping point of now we're using this race car, the old one is gone, and now the teams are starting to kind of move forward in a positive direction with it? Yeah, certainly. And especially as we got towards the end of the season, you saw a lot of the teams, uh, in particular, the ones as they um, fell out of the playoffs, you could tell that they kind of got out of their R&D group and into their race teams. And you could just tell by the level of feedback that we got and the, you know, the input that we were getting at the racetrack and the level of intensity was, you know, climbing and climbing and um, yeah, culminated there. And even for me, actually, you know, like we, we had done all our tests up till then. We had eight of them at most at a test, you know, and we unloaded at the, at the Charlotte Roval. I think we had 21 or 22 and then very similar amount at the Oval. Man, when I walk in there and you see, like haulers on both sides of the garage and like, Oh boy, boy, and this thing is coming to life now. Um, so even for us, the intensity went up. Um, Steve handles all that much better than I do. I, I didn't have any gray hair when I started at NASCAR, but um, that's changing quickly. Um, yeah, it's uh, definitely ratcheted up in the, the last few tests, you know, like we have a lot of testing coming up. We were in the wind tunnel today. 
We're gonna be at Charlotte Motor Speedway next Friday, testing some things that we learned in the wind tunnel. We're out at Talladega on the 13th of December, um, checking some stagger with Goodyear uh, for the Daytona tire, and then back to Charlotte on the 15th and the 17th. So, you know, we, we still have a lot of testing to do before we even, you know, uh, break away for, uh, you know, Christmas holiday. So uh, when we get back, right back to work, back down to Daytona on the 11th and 12th with, um, you know, pretty good field there. And then out to Phoenix on the 25th, 26th, I think it is. So a lot of testing to be done before we even get to the Coliseum. So um, looking forward to the Coliseum. Um, but right now also just trying to make sure that up to the very last second that we can make this car as good as we can make it for that debut race that, you know, I was telling, you know, our guys, I want our tongues hanging out that, that everybody knows we did everything we could up until the last possible second to make this absolutely as good as it could possibly be. Um, and, you know, like I got full, full effort from the folks back at the R&D center with, you know, Eric Jacuzzi and Brandon Thomas and Chris Papilia to, you know, Murphy and all those guys, they were all in the wind tunnel today. Um, I was getting reports when we were flying back from the, uh, the, the uh, sorry, the banquet there in Nashville, you know, these guys were in the wind tunnel. So it's kind of cool that, you know, we've got the depth, they're in there with the OEMs and several of the team's arrow guys in there. So, you know, we're, we're not done, you know, we're still working on it. Um, we'll continue to work on it as we need to. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the, uh, the pressure is on and you know, we're, we're working absolutely as hard as we can. Steve, you had mentioned that um, you didn't necessarily go with the lowest bidder when it comes to the vendors for this race car and the people who are manufacturing and producing the parts. And here on EPAR Trade, I mean, we have several different suppliers and manufacturers and vendors of things that we're doing. Can you give us an idea of just the vetting process, the selection process, and some of the things that you had to go through and maybe some of the criteria that you had in selecting the people who were going to actually build and manufacture these parts and pieces? Yeah, John, I'll, I'll let John do, do most of this one, but I, I would say in, in general, it goes back to the, the, the first piece being the collaboration with the teams in terms of, you know, have there been any long-term partners uh, that we have a really good relationship with first and foremost, that we could have some initial conversations before we even got into the RFP and bidding process, just to know, you know, how have those team relationships worked and to John's point, you know, having John from the team side, having a number of our folks who have worked directly with the teams, I think enabled us to have a fairly good feel for, okay, here are some, some directions we'd like to go, maybe not lead the industry, but, um, you know, kind of kick off the process. And then, you know, John and the team, I think did a fantastic job of bringing everyone together, but John, you want to kind of walk through maybe an example of what, what we did for him? Yeah, sure. And I, I would say it varied pretty greatly depending on what, part we were actually trying to rfp you know we've had we had some where we had one so like yeah that's a good luck winning that one right if you're the only one that that wanted you know now, now granted they had to meet i'm not saying that we only had one proposal we had one that made it through all of the filters so you know it starts off with us right in the specification for the part uh you know that includes mechanical drawing sometimes, but also functional specification on how the part has to work. We would send that out to all of the, the industry, if, if you would, like to Steve's point, we all know who the suppliers are today in our industry for parts and pieces, but then also to the greater uh, racing industry. So we reached out to not just traditional NASCAR vendors, but also, you know, you'll see some vendors um, that are supplying parts for this car that are in sports car racing, um, Formula One, IndyCar. So, you know, we, we expand or broadened our net, if you will, try to cast a much wider net across the field of suppliers and then actually reached out to some um, that, that may have had team connections. You know, our, our, our garage is a, a who's who of the Fortune 500 and there's a lot of manufacturing across that and a lot of interest um, from our team side with partners that they've had who may not be on the cars, but they've been technical partners with them. So we would send it to pretty much anyone and everyone that showed interest. Um, that would we'd usually give them a couple weeks to, to respond to the RFP. We would internally review it. Um, we would perhaps remove a, a few here and there that were just flat off the mark. Um, but then we would send all of that out to our race teams and our OEM representatives for their feedback. Uh, we would then schedule 
pre-COVID, we would we would schedule. I think we went through 15 or 16 rounds of RFP. So it was a very involved process, probably took a little over a year. And you know, the suppliers would come in, we'd give them 45 minutes to an hour to tell us who they are, why their part was better than the competitors, how they would be able to supply the part. And you know, now I think that knock on wood, we made good selections because if you look across the world right now, supply is an issue in a lot of areas. And obviously, you know, we're strained, but you know, so far we've we've managed it. I think you've had some guests on earlier in the week talking about some of the supply chain and maybe some of the the near misses. You know, I was talking to you know Fernelli there at SRI and we had lunch the other day and he was telling me about all these near misses. Like, don't tell me this. Like, I, I would rather for some of this, just be glad the parts are on the shelf, you know? Um, so we were laughing about that. Um, but yeah, coming out the other end, the teams after we had sit through these would send us their top three. Here's the three that I think should, should be in. The OEMs would do the same. Uh, you know, Tom Swindell, like I'd mentioned earlier, was sort of running point on all of this for us. He would put that all into spreadsheets and we'd sit in a room again, pre-COVID, and then when COVID hit, it obviously all went virtual, but we, we followed the same process, just not as, I don't think, effective when we have to do it um, over the computer versus face-to-face. -face. And, you know, we, we'd argue over it. We, I don't know if we had any hurt feelings, but we would certainly, uh, we would argue our case to each other and um, come up with our final recommendation and then take it out and adapt to defend it. And after we did that, then we'd obviously notify the supplier that they were selected or the unfortunate case they weren't selected, we notify them as well. And, uh, you know, it, you, you try to, even the ones that, that didn't get it, you don't, you don't want them to go away because like eventually, you know, there's a lot of parts and pieces and we're in a lot of forms of racing. And, um, you know, we, we want to keep our supplier base as, as wide and as healthy as we possibly can. And I think, yeah, Brad, what's, yeah, I was going to say what's probably interesting too, if, if you go back to even the pre-RFP process, you know, some of the folks that, you know, John and I, you know, Doug Yates, you know, had a, had a concept of, of, you know, hey, what could be and, and talking to Doug and, you know, you look at some people who've been around the sport for a long, long time of, hey, have you ever thought of this? And then, you know, we went over to Le Mans and, you know, we're talking to guys from BMW who were hugely helpful, actually, in the process of, you know, as you go down this path, make sure you don't make some of the mistakes we did in terms of, you know, we built a car around a specific engine. Um, and didn't have a capability to change. And that was a great eye opener for us. So it's it's really been neat to kind of see different perspectives, learn from not only US racing, but what's going on around the world as well. Yeah, yeah I would add to that, that, you know, from our perspective, it's been very encouraging that anytime that we have struggled with this car, the folks that have reached out to us to help are, you know, obviously the, the folks in our garage are, are frontline to a lot of that. and everyone realizes we're all in this. This is, this is our future. Uh, we're rowing the boat in the same direction with this, but you know, like steering is a good example. You know, like when we had issues at the Roval uh, with vibration, we had multiple non NASCAR related OEMs and teams reach out to us trying to help. And at that point, when anyone's willing to help, we're all ears. We listen we're, we have no pride in trying to figure this out by ourselves. We are much better as a collective than we are, um, and there, there's no single person, and everybody knows this in racing, that's smarter than the rest. It's, I, I would rather race with a collective IQ any day than any single you know, IQ. So um, really, really encouraged with just the racing industry as a whole when we have struggled has reached out and helped. Yeah, I, I like that. That's, that's great talking about just having a lot of minds together coming up with this. Um, for either Steve or John. You know, one thing when it comes to using common parts um, across an entire platform, you know, people start to wonder how do manufacturers end up having their own identity? And I know in the truck series, for example, you could even look as, as late as last night during the awards ceremony, whereas the truck series runs a common engine with the NT1, we heard a lot about how Toyota came back with Thor Sport Racing and Thor Sport won the championship. You know, in this regard, we obviously have the manufacturers designing their own engine, but also going into their own R&D with the race teams. How do you keep the manufacturer identity when you do have so many common parts and pieces? Yeah, I, think that's, yeah. I would say that you hit a perfect um, example right there with, you know, we heard Dave Wilson last night talk about, you know, Toyota and 
marriages and divorce. I wasn't sure where it was going at first, but it was actually really well done. Um, you know, if, if you look at, at that series, we were actually able to take what we've learned on the next gen through the submission of that car and allowing, you know, what has got to be an unprecedented amount of OEM character in the, in the next gen car. And we took those lessons learned from that. We actually implemented it in the truck series for 2022. And it's not something that I've heard a lot out there yet, but actually for 2022, all three OEMs are going to be launching brand new trucks. And they've already announced that that they'd have, more character in them than we've ever had because of what, you know, the, the lessons we learned together as we submitted our cars through the next gen, we just replicated that for the truck series. So I think that from a brand identity perspective in an OEM, uh, in the truck series in particular, uh, you'll, you'll, from the exterior of the car, obviously in that case, when you, when you have the more engine in them, um, you'll have that eye, you know, if you're the fan in the stands with your eyeballs, you're gonna be able to easily tell you know, which OEM is out there competing. When you look at the next gen car, again, the same thing. You look at the car, obviously more brand identity in those than we've ever had. The engine is still uh, a competition amongst the engine builders and the OEMs um, to make the most horsepower that they can. And I think that even when that hood's up, when you look at the, the new induction system on the car, you know, like today, if you did that, you see the same air box for the most part on our cars at, with the gen six. When you, when you open up the hood of a, of a next-gen car, all three OEMs have their own airbox and intake assembly that's very characteristic for that particular OEM. So I think that when you look at the DNA of our, our OEMs around their bodies and their, their powertrain with the next-gen car, I, I, would, I would say that um, we probably have as much OEM identity as we've ever had. And they will still continue to compete you know, on the intellectual property and simulation around um, you know, driver simulators, tire modeling, uh, race strategy, all of that. So I think that, you know, from an OEM perspective, uh, there there is as much or more to be working on with this new car uh, than we had with even the, the Gen 6. Well, Steve, let's look ahead. Uh, Schedule-wise, we're heading to even more venues this year. We talked about the Los Angeles Coliseum. The Cup Series gets to race at Worldwide Technology Raceway Gateway in St. Louis. We get to go back to Auto Club Speedway for the first time in two years because the pandemic kept us away from there. And a lot of the things that we even mentioned that we talked about, the possibilities of even more new venues moving forward. So let's talk about the sport moving forward, not just from a schedule perspective, but just from a progression standpoint yeah i think you know first and foremost it's it's the car and and uh, managing expectations you know we all know that the pressure of going out and, and putting on great racing but i think it's important to also look at you know how we got to where we are today and and that was the ability to probably use safety as an example that you're you're never done working on safety each and every day you learn and you apply things and and that's the same approach we'll take with the car. Um, you know, within reason, we've got to manage obviously the costs and, and know that when we make a change, um, we've got to really think through and, and the longevity of that change. But I think the discussions that we're having are going to allow us to, to really work together when we see something on the track that make an, could make an improvement, you know, around an intermediate or around a road course race. Uh, we can do that together and, and we can start to approach that in, in a much more strategic way because we've, we're coming from that common space of, of knowing what's working and what's not. So, you know, I'd say getting in, getting the cars out there, going to see the race will, will be really fun and, and, and really cool to see. But then, you know, when you look at those new markets, you know, Gateway for us is going to be fantastic. You know, what Curtis Francois has done, uh, incredible partnership with us in the trucks, you know, what he's done around IndyCar and the community and a well-deserving award that he received at our banquet as well. And, and I think just a great partnership and, and a great marketplace. And you know, we'll be out in Portland, uh, which will be fun also to, to get back out there, a place we used to race, a place that uh, from an OEM perspective, you know, it was important to, to see what we can do in that part of the country. It's been a while, uh, I think back to the evergreen days when we raced the truck. So it'd be fun to, uh, to go out west. And, and you mentioned California. You know, we've put on some pretty good races out there as well and, and kind of have that double Coliseum uh, back to the East Coast and then back out to L.A. So it'll be uh, important for us to get off to a good roll through the West Coast. And then, you know, our work won't stop, right, John? We're out. We're, we're talking to new OEMs. We're talking about new technology of what could this car be? 
Um, what are we going to race in the future across our national series platform? There's a lot of enthusiasm as you look at that into the future, all the different engine technologies that we could apply and with fuels. So a lot of exciting things going on, uh, particularly with, with the folks that are participating, um, you know, in, in this and suppliers uh, to all of motorsports. Uh, really unique time to be part of it. Um, as John said, you know, COVID took some changes that you thought were, you know, 10 years down the road and, and made them 12 months. And so, you know, trying to really work together uh, in a calculated, smart way uh, to set yourself up for the future is, is going to be really important. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Portland. I, I miss when the truck series used to race there. And I yep. think it's great that we get to go back there with the Xfinity series. Well, you know, Steve and John, um, the one thing NASCAR has shown us a lot of things and really motorsports in general, um, not just over the last year, but over the last decades. More recently, obviously, when it comes to any challenge that's thrown in front of us, racers will find a way. And we showed that throughout the pandemic to be able to get back on the track and race and then be back on the track and race in front of fans in the grandstands. But also the one thing I love as well, that it doesn't matter if we've had a successful event or if we've had a, a scary looking crash or something come up that the sport never sits back and says, oh, well, we figured it out. We're done because you well as know as anybody, you're never done. All you can do is take what you found and learn from it and make it even better. Yeah, I, I applaud, you know, John and his team and in particular, Dr. Uh, John Padillac that we have at the R&D Center. You know, it's a, it's a one of a kind place. Um, and the hours that, that uh, they put in, um, you know, there are unsung heroes because, um, you know, when, when things go wrong, um, you know, we're, we're all visiting them, but when things go right, which they usually do, um, it's just kind of, hey, that's that's what we should be doing. But, um, you know, we put a lot of faith in, in them as a group and, and they constantly deliver. And there will always be challenges, as you said. You know, we are in a, a sport where we race cars and we race cars fast and, and things can happen. Um, so I think it's our job to put people in the best and most safe position as possible to allow them to go out and, and do what they do best. And, and from NASCAR standpoint, that's beating and banging and, and, and racing hard. Um, but they've got to have faith in, in that vehicle we put together. And, and John and his team do a phenomenal job with that. And, and they work with the industry to do that. Well, I, I do want to thank both of you, um, Steve O'Donnell and John Probst, number one, for coming on here for Race Industry Week with EPAR Trade. I know throughout this week, we've talked to a lot of wonderful suppliers and vendors and sanctioning bodies. Uh, we are talking to a lot of people within the racing industry day in and day out right here. And we appreciate NASCAR being part of this and really look forward to the next time we get to have you guys on here and kind of talk about uh, where we were, where we've gone and where we're going. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you all. The concept for EPAR trade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for EPAR trade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information and then from there it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your work day in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all of that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of EPAR trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world.
EPAR Trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. There are two types of people, racers and everyone else. Racer Magazine is for those who believe that racing is a way of life. Racer embodies the excellence that defines a sport driven by passion, courage, and ingenuity. Get one year of both Racer's print and digital edition for only $39 with instant access to our entire digital issue archive. Subscribe now at info.racer.com.